Hey, hey, and welcome back to the new season of Shade with me, Lou Mensah. This season, we will be reflecting on the power of the image within the civil rights movement. And my guests include founding members of Black Lives Matter, photographers and editors from publications such as Time magazine and ID, curators and art critics. And together, we will be reflecting on the imagery and the stories that came from the Black Lives Matter 2020 uprisings with the people who created them. And I want to say a big thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. I'm honoured to have you all involved in this show and supporting this work and elevating our stories. For as little as £1 a month, you can become a Shade patron and join others in supporting this work and elevating our stories. So go to patreon.com forward slash shade podcast to become a patron. OK, so here we go. Black Images Matter. The final episode this season... Episode 8, In Conversation with the White Pube. Support for Shade's Black Images Matter series comes from Chloris, creators of organic superior grade CBD formulations. I talk with the co-founder Kim quite often about our holistic approach, not only to health, but also to our children's education, an education that nurtures an interest and investment in the world that we all share. And part of Chloris's investment is being a long-term partner of the charity Help Refugees. Cloris's co-founder, Pedram, has spent many years working with refugees as an interpreter. Kim said of our collaboration that it's crucial to support platforms that engage in important conversations surrounding race, as Shade does so brilliantly. So go to chloriscbd.com to find out more about the range and for information on help refugees. And sign up to support Shade through Patreon and you'll receive a Chloris subscriber gift. The White Pube is the collaborative identity of art critics Gabrielle de la Puente and Zarina Mohammed, and they come back as guests to chat with me about their personal highlights within the art arena during the Black Lives Matter uprisings. So when did you guys see yourself first represented or you were aware that there were people in magazines or on the TV or something that felt like they had an experience like you or you felt comfortable watching them because they seemed to reflect a life that you recognised? Yeah, I feel like you're a bit of an idiot saying this because while I recognise that there is a real lack of representation or there was more of a lack of South Asian representation in British culture and media generally, there was this one specific film. I was, as a kid, quite a big fan of Bollywood. Like, I really loved Bollywood films. We used to watch them like with our mum. And, like, mm-hmm. at the weekend, that was, like, a nice thing for us to do as a family. And there's this one film called Kush Kush Hot And there's a character in it, this little kid called Anjali. And she's got this fringe and this bob. And she looked literally the split of me as a kid. Pass it down. Pass it down. Anjali, you also have I looked like this actress, like this tiny child actress. That was like me. <laughs> so like, I, I think I was quite glad to have that as like a cinematic 
backdrop and like a cinematic reference and I was aware that just because Britain has got pretty shit representation doesn't mean the rest of the world has there were other people in the world that looked like me I kind of had that but yeah other than that nothing (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. what about you Gab (laughs) what representations did you see of like lives you were living in in Liverpool or like how you were living like did you see that reflected oh not at all I didn't see I'm kind of sat here trying to think of scout representation and what I can remember is like Scylla Black. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Brookside. Did you have Brookside? 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 Um, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a little bit too young for it. Like Scylla Black, who is a massive Tory. And, <laughs> I didn't and, then, know that. and then like years later, all I can think of is Hayley on Love Island. (laughs) 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 With Hayley being like, is England a country then? (laughs) Like, what Brexit? Capital of Wales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm from Liverpool, so I live in a country. Not Liverpool's a city. A city. Yeah. If you go on a plane and go to another place, that's still United Kingdom, isn't it? Depends where. Where do you want to go? So Spain. That's not United Kingdom. That's Europe. <laughs> I don't think I've got a good answer for this in the slightest because oh. it was not there. <laughs> and oh, also, man. like, it's why, like, the lack of representation in class, I think, is why I'm so interested in Gogglebox because you can mm. see inside people's homes and just, like, their banter to, towards each other. And, like, that is the best representation because there is a little bit of all of us in it. Yeah, I'm totally with you with that. And like we can relate to almost every single family in different ways. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, you're right. Gogglebox. Like Gogglebox is so unmediated by, you know, editing and, and a script or anything like that. It's just it is just people being themselves, which is, yeah, really interesting. Did you ever watch that reality TV show? set in Liverpool called Desperate Scouse Wives. I didn't. I didn't know. I was like, it's just, I've just remembered it and now I really want to know what you think. (laughs) Maybe I should watch it. Maybe that, I should should do like a, 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 I don't know, live response Twitch stream. We should, yeah, we should do live response with Desperate Scouse Wives and Desi Rascals, the (laughs) reality show directed by Gurinder Chadda, I think. (laughs) Right, do it. <laughs> you said it now. Yeah. <laughs> what we're going to be talking about in this episode is the responses from the art community, whether that would be the larger institutions or individuals within our community that reacted to what was happening during the summer of 2020. And I'm just really interested to hear what you noticed. Obviously, we had a lot that was going on with the bigger institutions like Tate United's what happened happened there and the positive thing about that is that everybody did come together right for me it's a little bit it's a little bit of a sticky one because I think I'm quite cynical I I do fundamentally believe that institutions are really good at telling you the things that you want to hear saying that they're going to change and then never really following through so like there's still whether they actually are gonna follow through on the statements of this summer it's still kind of pending for me like I'm yet to see proof that they're gonna stick to their words but like you said I think it just was really heartwarming and it's still a massive win the bar must be in hell quite frankly the bar is that low the bar's underground but it really was heartwarming for me to see there be such like a movement towards this be like this being acknowledged there was no room for silence on the half 
of institutions. Audiences, artists, art workers alike all kind of came together to say, yeah, nah, you can't get away with kind of staying quiet on this one. You've got to say something. You've got to respond. We're going to make a spreadsheet and like track whether you've responded and what you've said and how much you've committed to. That was really powerful for me. These two things happened at once, right? Pandemic and um, uprisings. I like that you use the word uprisings to refer to them. Like that feels really apt. But those two things happening alongside each other with the institutions kind of going wholesale to a move towards like making their most casualized staff, like the most casualized part of their workforce redundant and just clearing out front of house jobs. It was really, really heartwarming to see artists as big as like Mark Leckie and uh, the recipients of the Turniversary, people at that level of the art world, well-respected with a reputation to see them, you know, coming down to shout about it in front of the turbine hall with Mark, in Mark's case, or like publicly put their name to something to say that they were very, very much against it and they'd like it to not happen. <laughs> like that felt really massive. It, like the bar really must be in hell because I don't think I've seen that before. Or maybe I'm just like a bit young, a bit out of the loop, but I haven't, I, I don't think I have seen that before. People are quite keen to stay comfortable at times or that's been my worry that like if you're in a comfortable position you just kind of take a step back and see where it goes but people really put themselves out there this year and Mm. I appreciate that yeah Hey, it's Lou here with a quick break to tell you about the remaining two episodes of a four-part collaboration between Shade and Convergence, the South London Gallery's platform for critical conversations, screenings and written commissions. On Saturday, March the 20th, I will be in conversation with Susan Butler. Susan is a writer, performance artist and teacher. Her debut novel, Signet, was published in 2020 and received winner of the Writers Guild First Novel Award. Together, we will be exploring the racial empathy gap in literature. And for our fourth and final episode, on Saturday, April the 17th, I will be in conversation with sound artist and poet Axel Cacoutier. Axel is a multi-award-winning audio artist and poet, so be sure to catch our conversation as bonus content wherever you download Shade Podcast or on the South London Gallery website. OK, let's get back to today's show. What was really interesting to me was that what happened through the uprisings was that people were really communicating like in a real heartfelt and an honest way, in a way that I haven't seen before. You know, I'm nearly half a century, right? I'm nearly 50. <laughs> and I I haven't seen that before. Like it was truly overwhelming. It felt like the one time where you could really speak your truth. And I think the knock-on effect of that was that it sort of, opened were carved the way for us to continue to do that not just within Black Lives Matter but for so many other causes as well and I noticed that after you guys also set up a few things as well and I saw that the response was overwhelming and I I think part of that is because obviously people respect you and they trust what causes you are behind but also there's a real 
there's been a real shift in people actually wanting to walk the talk and actually do something rather than just share posts on Instagram. So you had the food bank thing that you did. And then also you were raising money as well for a friend who needed help, medical help. And just these things that you were doing, I just thought at the time, this is just so interesting the way that people are just so open now in a way that I personally haven't seen before. Yeah, definitely. I was just trying to, as you were speaking, pull up the crowdfunder pages just to see just how much we ended up raising. One of my friends who is black and trans and queer and is had like a very incredibly difficult year in terms of his health. Like we were able to leverage our followers and also that kind of moment where people you know a lot of white people especially as well like wanted to help but all they kind of knew what to do was give money to things and and, yeah. and, and to capitalize on that moment I think and in a on a capitalist way but in a way of redirecting power and opportunity and safety to someone like that felt really important over the past few years we've accidentally attracted a very very big audience and when we were going into our fourth year we had this conversation with each other where we said you know that we've got this now what should we do something with it and our answer was uh yeah but we just didn't quite know how to instrumentalize and apply everything suddenly all of these avenues became clear and we were able to yeah fundraise for m who we've been referring to him as m to go private to get Mm. testing and all of that is still happening now and it's you know really like a relief for me as a friend to know that they're still here so there was that and then there was also yeah like off the back of Marcus Rashford's food bank push we were able to raise 15,000 pounds for a food bank in Liverpool and a food bank in North London as well so all of that has been great it's it's like how can we be these people who you know like (laughs) I don't know what the name would be for like the train people whatever their job is the, to change the signals and to change the tracks oh, and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. I feel like sometimes that's who we are like we can see something coming in and we can like redirect it somewhere else like this yeah this like middleman so one of the other stories that came through that which I'm really really happy with is we got a message on Instagram earlier this year from Callum Hall from Creative Debuts just didn't know anything it was a really kind of exciting message where he said you know I really want to support the white pube but is there anything that you want support with and we got excited <laughs> we were like we've always <laughs> wanted to have some kind of artist grant like just some you know completely no strings attached funding opportunity for people like really easy application process maybe not even an application process just you know raise your hand if you want it and we'll we'll pick someone and we had this conversation with him. He said, you know, if we're going to do an artist grant, it should only go to black artists. And we said, yeah, of course. And then we had a moment ourselves where we were like, okay, well, in that case, it shouldn't be us. <laughs> like, It should be selected by black art professionals or writers or curators or someone else. And there's a zine in Liverpool called Rooted Revolution of Our Time and it's run by Amber Akanu and Fuzia Johnson. And we were able to put Callum in touch with Rooted. And at that up until that point, we kind of 
done a bit of the legwork in terms of the copy for what the grant would be and how it would be administrated and you know it'd be once a month and like that's the kind of knowledge we've got at this point that we can it's useful for other people so we could do all that and then hand it over to Rooted and then for three months they selected different artists to give the Black Artist Grant to and now that selector has changed and the idea is like the selector will change a few times a year so that the reach is different and Callum which I think is what his skill set is and how he was able to bring yeah different knowledge into it was to connect more funders to it so it's not just one 500 pound grant but I think it's three at the moment so three artists every month will get this grant and it's not the answer to everything at all it's it's not a massive structural change but for people who just need 500 pounds to like pay the rent or you know buy a camera or whatever it is like it will always do a lot he then came back to us later in the year and said is there anything else you want to do and we were like oh yes <laughs> we've we yeah if you yeah, if you're asking and um we've since thought well okay the black artist grant exists and that seems to be going really well what else is missing and for us as writers we think what is missing is more writers like mm writing is so important speaking is so important and we were able then with Callum (laughs) to set up the white pube writers grant for working class writers specifically and that we're about to give the third recipient out so that's gone to Ruskin Smith David Ashaya Osu and Fakezia Hodgson so it's it's just so exciting it's like you know we had this idea at the beginning of the year of like how do we apply this now that we've got an audience and I think it's all come true these kind of initiatives always have a trickle effect. So I hope that it will inspire others who have a platform that can do similar to do so, especially because you're saying like accessing art funding, uh, like I've tried two applications now. I just can't, I just can't, I just can't do it. <laughs> like, so to have like funding that you can apply for that is an easy process which means that it's accessible it's like god when you have your break in december you're going to look back and go jesus you know we we did it we moved things this summer yeah. like you really did it's like i hope you don't just like collapse of exhaustion like, I hope you really enjoy <laughs> That's that too late but it's amazing i'm going to round up but like just before we go with all of these conversations we people do talk about structural change and people need to pass the mic share the power all of that I haven't seen I don't think I've seen one example of that really happening and I'm talking from the big top institutions or people in real big positions of power all I've heard is conversations about people saying we must do this and I'm like well who's doing it then apart from the ground you know the grassroots organizations like yourselves who are the ones who you know traditionally are the ones who do it one thing comes to mind which not necessarily is like visual art related but is game related Mm. so Riot Games who are like absolutely huge run League of Legends and loads of other stuff. Mm-hmm. They set up an underrepresented founders program and pledged like I think it was 10 million towards investments and yeah, different stuff in the in gaming communities. And I know that they've since like brought on a, your a small developer called Twin Drums. I think mm-hmm. they're based in Berlin and they're developing the Wagadu Chronicles. An African-inspired fantasy world for you to role-play with others. A place to call home 
which is an Afro fantasy, massively multiplayer online RPG. And it looks incredible. Like it's one of the only things I've been like, oh my God, someone actually did something <laughs> like, like on a on a big scale. So gaming has is like got their shit together and they've done that. Like that's pretty massive. It's pretty massive, uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. I recognise that I am an awful pessimist and cynic. I I own that. But well, me too. That's why I'm asking <laughs> this question. <laughs> but it was one that um Swazi McCallie yesterday on the panel and it was no signal. There's like a real movement at the moment, I think. Less so of institutions given, you know, space, platform and, you know, time resources to mm. marginalised voices and more examples of marginalised communities getting together and making their own thing and like saying fuck your platform I'm gonna make and build my own I think we're really seeing them be given resources in a way that perhaps hasn't happened before like yeah. Languid Hands's curatorial fellowship at Qubit has been really good because the first show to come out of that curatorial traineeship happened uh, it was R.I.P. Jermaine they did a show called Dead Yard and that was open over the summer for the brief period in between lockdowns. And that was incredible. Like that was the most beautiful show I've seen like all year. I was like really touched and moved by it. And mm-hmm. like it tied up so many loose ends for me. I think in art, it's less going to be institutions moving out of the way and creating these spaces and people creating their spaces for themselves. And I think I prefer it that way around, actually. So really looking forward, the hope for the future is that it's like the smaller groups that are continued are going to continue to do the work and that's where the focus is going to be for positivity rather than looking to the bigger power houses yeah inshallah (laughs) (laughs) let's see what happens (laughs) hey it's Lou here with a note to round up this season I wanted to produce Black Images Matter because I've become aware of how consumerist our environment has become in terms of information. We see a lot of things, but because they are driven to attract our attention, we don't always have the time to digest when we are in a state of heightened emotion. The wealth of images and books and tweets and diversity programmes and statements and all of the responses that came from the uprisings have long been left behind. The images and the stories that came from the protests were everywhere, on our phones and on the newsstands. And now that the waters have closed over them, it's as though they didn't exist. Some months after the protests, I reshared some of the most salient images the ones shared most widely, and asked the Shade audience which resonated with them most. I was surprised by the breadth of emotion that came from the responses. It was clear that we hadn't given ourselves the time, the space to process. Demands were constantly made on our time as black creators. Suddenly, we were being asked to collaborate with brands or publications or individuals who had previously paid little attention to our work or experience. And it all seemed a bit transactional, but with the value often just going one way, without any clear perception or acknowledgement of the disproportionate struggle that we have faced to this point. And for this reason, I've been learning to slow down and think very carefully about who I'm going to spend my time working with. You find out who people are as you go along, and I've had the good fortune to build relationships with my collaborators for this season. 
And long-time listeners will notice the massive change in everything from the concept for the season to the enhanced sound production. As you have been hearing each week, I have C.A. Davis to thank for that. And as most of you know, I home educate my daughter and one of the communities we are involved with is a US-based home education co-op. And through this co-op, I met Brian Jackson's family. We've shared a drive for inclusive education, prison reform and for black creativity. And Brian opened the door to Shade, contributing music compositions specifically created for the show. And through this, I came to see Brian's generosity of spirit and care for refining our work. And this season has shown me that this slowing down and choosing who to work with and how to work requires the greatest respect and discipline for the job in hand. So this season's been a collaboration in the truest sense. And after eight weeks, we've focused on big press moments like the Overdue Awakening cover of Time magazine to fashion's response to the uprisings to individuals like Patrick Hutchinson, who unwittingly became a focus of the events that unfolded. And much of what we have consumed has been pigeonholed into silos for convenience. But as Dale Burning Sour stated in her recent Guardian article on Shade, it's the in-between that dictates so much of what we see in the media, the stuff that shapes representation or denies it altogether. And as she said, the goal for this season was to unpick the power structures that each of these images come out of. Who decides what gets commissioned and who gets published? And standout conversations were the ones where I felt that the guests worked out how they felt as they spoke with me. You know, the light bulb moments, the, oh, this is what I think and this is what I stand for and this is my role, or this is what we demand. And what this work has shown me is that with no formal experience in broadcasting, you can still create a space for important conversations that an audience wants to hear. And thanks to your support, Shade gets 10 times the average listener rate per podcast. And that's with no ad revenue, no backing and no budget. So thank you in particular to my Patreon subscribers. Thank you all so much for listening and engaging with the content. I'll be back next season and I'll see you then. If you enjoyed this show, please support the work by subscribing via whatever app you listen to your podcasts on and consider becoming a Shade patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash Shade podcast. Shade is produced and hosted by me, Lou Mensa, and the music is created for Shade by legendary composer Brian Jackson, half of the power duo Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. Thanks to Content is Queen for assistant editing and to C.A. Davis for editing, mixing and sound design. Be sure to listen to C.A.'s own brilliant show called Alato Thought. I'll let C.A. tell you a little bit about that now. Thanks for listening. See you next time. My name is C.A. Davis. And this is a lot of thought. 
an immersive podcast that dismantles post-racial myths about mixed-race identities. Analyzing American history, law, and empire, each episode examines a contemporary idea about mixed-raceness in order to reveal that race is the lie that became real. You see, in America, mixed-race people have been routinely exploited to both justify and challenge systems of white supremacy. The hypo descent rule became the formalized definition of hereditary slavery. But people are not mixed. History is mixed. In the early 20th century, in Harlem, New Orleans, Black and South Asian peoples made lives together. The Creek Nation and the Cherokee Nation joined at Greenwood and Asher, right where the Tulsa riots occurred. And it's those historical processes of empire, war, immigration, economics, that mix us all up. The idea that mixed race people are somehow more biologically, genetically fit. I mean, that's just not true. Some multiracial people say, yes, they are black, but it doesn't encompass the fullness of, say, being raised by a Korean mom. So tune in as academic research and histories are brought to rich, sonic life and woven together with the voices of intellectuals leading their fields. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter, both at L-A-T-T-O underscore T-H-O-U-G-H-T and subscribe on your favorite podcast app today. My name is C.A. Davis, and I'll talk to you all soon.